Lightforce Therapy Lasers help clinicians around the world to provide effective deep tissue laser therapy treatments. The Lightforce I-Series lasers provide in-use visual and sensory feedback, telling the clinician if they are dosing at the recommended speed, too fast, or too slow. The result? More accurate treatments for clinicians and better outcomes for patients. Treat with confidence. Learn more at lightforcemedical.com J-O-S-P-T. Clinical studies and device indications available upon request. Individual results may vary. Neither DJO LLC nor any of its subsidiaries dispense medical advice. Consult your healthcare professional for advice. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Rehabilitating patients with bone stress injuries can be particularly challenging. Finding the right balance of optimal loading while still improving cardiovascular fitness is not an easy plan of care to develop. So today we're sitting down with Dr. Stuart Warden to discuss his recent article in the July issue of JOSPT entitled Optimal Load for Managing Low-Risk Tibial and Metatarsal Bone Stress Injuries in Runners, The Science Behind the Clinical Reasoning. Dr. Stuart Warden is the Associate Dean for Research and a Professor of Physical Therapy within the School of Health and Human Sciences at Indiana University. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I am Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland. We are so grateful to have you here with us. Stuart, why don't you start us off with the very basics to lay the groundwork. What is a bone stress injury? Thanks for having me today. And you know, I'd, I'd like to give some props to my co-authors, Rich Rilly, who a lot of you will know, and also Brent Edwards, who's a bone stress fracture expert from, from Canada, who would be known by those in the bone field, but not so much in the PT sort of field. But to get to your question in terms of what is a, a bone stress injury, and, and, and that term sort of gets interchanged with stress fracture. And, and if you tell anyone, sort of a lay person off the street, they have a bone stress injury, they generally don't know what that means. Um, but if you tell them they have a stress fracture, they're like, oh, you know, I know what that is. And so a bone stress injury is an overuse injury to bone where you've introduced repetitive loading to not so much loading that's going to fracture within one sort of loading bout, but you introduce repetitive loading and it's caused damage that then has accumulated and is now producing symptoms. And stress fracture is is a a type of bone stress injury and also stress reactions. And, And there is a difference sort of between the two. Stress reactions thought to be less severe bone stress injuries where you've got changes on MRI imaging, but not on x-ray. Whereas if you've got a stress fracture, it's thought to be a little bit more severe where you've got damage on MRI or you can see it on MRI, but you can also see it on standard x-ray as well. So you actually have a a crack, a more visible crack in the bone. So, you know, these bone stress injuries is basically visible on MRI and they're producing symptoms. What does the like recovery look like from a physiologic standpoint? How bone stress injuries heal, we don't really know because they've been understudied, but we think we know what, what happens. And, and it's a combination of a process called targeted remodeling and also modeling. And so if I'll, I'll talk about targeted remodeling, and, and this is pretty unique to bone. 
And not only is it how bone stress injuries heal, but it's thought to be also involved in how they generate or how they form. So I can touch on both, you know, how do bone stress injuries develop and then how do they heal? When you load a bone, you get damage. You get this area of micro damage and it's called micro because it's only visible under a microscope. So there's very small cracks in, in bone tissue. And this is normal. Everybody listening has micro damage in their bones. Uh, they have about a million sites of micro damage in their skeleton at any time. So it's, it's not in itself a, a pathology. And that damage is an important for the skeleton to turn over and renew. So it creates a trigger for bone resorbing cells, so the osteoclasts to come along and take away old damaged areas of bone. And then the osteoblast or the bone forming cells come through and replace that old bone with new bone. And that's how bone sort of keeps renewing itself. Uh, gets rid of old damaged bone, replaces it with new bone, uh, so it can tolerate and adapt to different, different loads. But what happens with a bone stress injury is that for whatever reason, you're applying too much load to the bone or you're, you're introducing those loads too frequently, that that damage doesn't have time to be taken away and it starts to accumulate. And in that targeted remodeling process, when that osteoclasts or those bone resorbing cells take away bone, they leave a little bit of porosity. So there's a reduction in the bone mass at that very localized site. And if you continue loading, then you've got a little bit of weakness and it can develop into a bone stress injury. So how we think how they heal is that this targeted remodeling is involved. Uh, so once you have a bone stress injury and you've got pain and, and you reduce your loading because of the symptoms, uh, the targeted remodeling comes through and it starts removing those damaged areas of bone and replacing it with, with new bone. Then the other component is this process called modeling and, and modeling is where you get bone formation just on a, on a surface or bone resorption on the surface, but it doesn't require the orchestrated or the coordinated action of resorption and then formation. So you can get just formation on the surface. And that's what you see on x-ray when you can see early callus formation. Uh, you can see a bump of lower density bone on the x-ray and that's modeling, that's bone formation forming on the bone surface and it didn't need resorption first to occur. And that modeling creates sort of a scaffold or a callus over that bone stress injury. So how they heal is you've got a little bit of targeted remodeling to fix the inside of the bone. And then you've got modeling that creates a scaffold on the outside of the bone so that you can start tolerating load again. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you for keeping it simple for those of us who maybe haven't taken physiology in a moment. It has definitely been a minute. So, so let's jump in. Can you can you first differentiate for us the difference between low and high risk bone stress injuries? And then let's talk about key principle number one, because it's so important managing load in, in these patients, particularly our runners struggling with bone stress injuries. You know, a lot of what I'm talking about or what we're talking about today relates to low risk bone stress injuries. And so there are, there are different types of bone stress injury. And, and we said at the start and the paper talks about that we're talking about low risk injuries to the, the posterior medial tibia and the metatarsal um, shaft. And so these are low risk in that they generally readily heal. They don't need a specific intervention. They don't need surgical intervention. Uh, they, they heal once you start taking off the load. This is different than high risk injuries, for example, at the femoral neck, where you have to have specific treatment. You can't just you know, stop running and, ex and expect it to heal. Sometimes that doesn't happen at the high risk injury. So I just wanted to point out today, we're talking about those low risk ones. And historically, 
those low risks, say tibial and metatarsal stress fractures, particularly um, the, the tibias, people were put in a walking boot in the past and, and physicians would say, hey, you've got a, a bone stationary or a stress fracture, put on this walking boot, come back and see me in six to eight weeks. And what we've realized is that that's not probably the most optimal way to treat these uh, by putting someone in a boot and having the consequences of walking around in this boot that has secondary sort of causes secondary issues. So the first thing with a bone stress injury is you want to get them symptom free. That's the main thing. And everything in this sort of loading or optimal loading sort of paradigm is an optimal load is, is the one that doesn't cause symptoms. So when they're acute and early on, everyday activities or walking could produce symptoms. You've got to reduce loading. You've got to get, try and get them as symptom-free as soon as possible. So if they're symptomatic, so they're walking around and, and they're getting symptoms at their site, at their bone stress injury site, you need to titrate or reduce that load. And that may involve starting with partial weight bearing. And if that doesn't cut it, so partial weight bearing could be achieved with just crutches or, or other forms of gait. Um, assistive devices. If partial weight bearing doesn't work, then going to full non-weight bearing with crutches, or you can use a walking boot, but it's not for a prescribed period in that you know you don't put them in a walking boot for six to eight weeks. You put it in for a short period of time until they're asymptomatic or symptom-free, and then you start reintroducing load. So acutely, you want to reduce load. If they do have symptoms at rest, night pain and that sort of thing, you can consider analgesics and NSAIDs to make them more comfortable, but they shouldn't be used to try and achieve a normal or pain-free gait. They're more just to treat those acute inflammatory symptoms. So if they have night pain at that at bone stress injury site, then they can consider NSAIDs, but you need to stop using those as soon as possible because they do have sort of secondary consequences on the healing of bone. And so just to clarify, asymptomatic doesn't just mean asymptomatic in the clinic, but during exercise, afterwards, and then really, really into the next day. Is that right? So in this acute sort of period, we're really trying to reduce symptoms during ADLs, activities of daily living and, and normal gait. Once they start reintroducing load, then we get into talking about having no symptoms during, after, and, and basically 24-hour sort of rule, no symptoms for 24 hours after a, a loading bout. That strikes me as incredibly important, not only as we progress these patients, but as we educate them on their progression. So thank you so much for those details. The big takeaway is getting them moving, progressing based on symptoms for this first managing load principle. Principle number two is consider healing supplements. What are the big takeaways from that? Even though we don't fully know how bone stress injuries heal, we know it involves bone formation and you need to take away old bone or the damaged bone and, and replace it with new, younger bone. And so there's always, particularly from athletes and coaches and, and everyone else, they want to know how to get back to activity yesterday. And so they're always looking for ways to try and augment or accelerate healing. And particularly if it's a passive modality, that something's pretty easy, they're all for it. And there is some potential that maybe some of these may impact bone healing. But I will point out that really there's no evidence as yet that any sort of supplement, healing supplement facilitates or, or accelerates bone stress injury healing. But there are some candidates, some candidates that, that show maybe some promise. One is low-intensity pulsed ultrasound. Sometimes it's called lipus. And there is some preclinical and some 
some early clinical evidence that may have some effect on bone formation and bone healing. But the couple of randomized controlled trials that have been done really didn't find a benefit. You know, th- those two, the two studies that have been performed have significant limitations. So, you know, th- it, they're not crystal clear, but there is potentially some evidence that, that lipus, low intensity ultrasound, may have some benefit. We don't know whether it has any detriment. Uh, we don't think it does. So I think a lot of people, as long as it doesn't cause a, a detrimental effect, then they'll try it. The other thing that, that people have considered is looking at the osteoporosis drugs and looking at different ways to accelerate the bone cell sort of processes. And the big class of osteoporosis drugs that sort of first came on the market were the anti-resorptives or the bisphosphonates. So Fosamax and those types of drugs. And those drugs actually are detrimental to bone stress injury healing because what they do is they shut down the bone resorbing osteoclasts. So if you take these anti-resorptives or the bisphosphonates, then they, they stop targeted remodeling. And so basically it stops the healing process. So they're not advised to be used in people with a bone stress injury. In contrast, there is potential that the anabolic agents may be beneficial. By anabolic, we mean the ones that primarily target the bone formation phase of targeted remodeling. For example, things like teriparatide, which is a, par- a parathyroid hormone, it goes by the name Forteo, has been studied in females with bone stress injuries. And there is some preliminary evidence that it may create an anabolic or bone forming response. Whether that accelerates healing, we don't know yet. But I do know clinically, just from discussions with clinicians, that the Forteo is being used off-label particularly by professional athletes who have bone stress injuries, and they're combining it with low-intensity ultrasound as well. So I know these modalities are being used clinically, particularly in elite athletes. Whether they're effective, we don't know yet. The people were asking about it. We could could let them know, but nothing really truly that we are super excited about as far as healing supplements. No one's actually studied the effect of these on the bone tissue sort of healing side of things. So whether they actually accelerate the healing at the bone tissue and if they do accelerate healing at, at the tissue level, does that result in an acceleration in return to activity? Sounds like somebody's a research project should be coming up here. Really? Talk about guaranteed funding. Every single professional sports team is going to have a stake in that paper. But that is certainly a discussion for another day. So let's talk about key principle number three. This is just so so important how to maintain cardiovascular fitness in these patients i mean runners are notorious for not wanting to stop running so how do you recommend making sure they're keeping fit during this phase of rehabilitation when running at their their normal pace or their normal volume is just counterproductive to their healing process this requires a lot of cross training so running may not be possible so cross training can involve cycling swimming Deep water running can uh, reproduce the sort of cardiovascular or cardiopulmonary effects of running over ground. So doing these sort of cross-training or low-impact activities that don't really involve bone loading, but they enable them to work cardiovascularly and work on fitness. And so when doing this cross-training sort of activities, you can incorporate endurance or long sort of distance activities. Or you can also include your high-intensity interval training sort of sessions as well, particularly you know, on the bike and swimming and so on, combining high-effort sort of intervals with sort of rest periods in between. So you can work on different energy systems via cross-training and maintain some component or some aspect of fitness. When doing the cross-training, you do want to be careful of symptoms still. 
So all of this is, is symptom driven. So if they do a cross training activity and it, it's producing symptoms at their bone stress injury site, then they need to change that activity. Um, they need to change what they're doing or they need to reduce their cross training sort of activity and needs to be reassessed. There are some specific recommendations that you can give as well, depending on whether they have a metatarsal stress fracture or bone stress injury. You know, for example, cycling with a metatarsal bone stress injury, you do have to be careful because where the pedal is can create bending moments across that bone stress injury and reduce symptoms. So it may be that they need to change their, their pedal setup, move their foot forward further on the pedal so that they're pushing more through the, the rear foot uh, rather than through the arch or the forefoot so that they're not creating bending moments on that metatarsal. So they can still work out on a bike, but not load that injury site. Swimming's the same. You know, if, if someone's doing swimming, we try and avoid the flip turns because that's going to load, it, whether it be a tibia or a metatarsal. So they can swim to the wall, but they shouldn't push off the wall and they shouldn't do a flip turn. They shouldn't use flippers because that's going to load particularly metatarsal and tibia. You can use a swim buoy or buoy that can help them also not use their legs as much so they're not loading that injury site. Just wonderful, clinically relevant, clinically applicable advice. The fourth key principle is now addressing muscle function. So how can we consider muscle function as we're rehabbing patients with bone stress injuries? Because you touch on some, some great things to consider when we're choosing kind of which interventions to focus on. Muscles are a, a, a controversial issue at the moment, sort of in the bone stress injury sort of domain. Controversial in the sense that does muscle cause bone stress injuries or is it protective? And we know muscle creates the greatest force on a bone. It's not ground reaction forces. It's not the impact of the ground. It's the muscles that contract in response to those ground reaction forces that load bone. So there's this controversy as to whether muscle is protective or causative of bone stress injuries. I think it's both. And a lot of, a lot of other researchers and sort of experts in the field think that there has a role in both sort of fields. We think that it is protective, uh, muscle is protective of bone stress injuries. There's prospective ev trial evidence that's showing that people with smaller muscles, weaker muscles, higher risk of getting a bone stress injury. So there's, there's pretty good evidence that you know, it potentially plays a, a protective role. And so you do need to strengthen muscles and you want to strengthen muscles over that bone stress injury site, but you also want to strengthen proximally and distally as well. The sort of example is that you know, if you have stronger and fitter quadriceps, then you can run softer with less impact on the ground. You can run with more knee flexion. And so you want to strengthen those sort of anti-gravity muscles so that you can absorb and, and absorb that ground impact more. Particularly, you know, with bone stretch injuries around the tibia, we know that the plantar flexors, so the big calf complex is the, the big muscle in the, in the leg, in that lower leg that is important. So we really want to strengthen and make sure we maintain strength in that, in that muscle or those muscles. And as with any sort of injury, a bone stress injury causes pain and, and we know pain is inhibitory of muscle. So we want to get these muscles working again as soon as possible. You do want to be careful though, whenever you're doing the muscle strengthening, whether it be for the quadriceps or gastroc or, or whichever sort of hamstrings, um, that when you apply a resistance to someone with a bone stress injury, that that resistance is not loading the injury site. For example, if you're doing leg extension exercises with someone with a tibial bone stress injury, 
you can put the resistance above where the bone stress injury is so that you're not creating a, a fulcrum or a bending moment over the injury site. You just have to get innovative in terms of how you do this strengthening, particularly early on in the healing phase, so that you're not loading that bone stress injury site, but you're getting the strengthening that you want to do and strengthening those those you know, those big important muscles uh, that we think are important with, uh, with running. You guys highlighted something really important that I think was maybe one of my biggest takeaways was how important dorsiflexion is in people with especially the metatarsal bone stress injuries. Can you touch on that really quick? Because I, again, that was like a, wow, I really should have been able to think of that on my own. <sighs> I, I got to give props to Rich really. That's his um, sort of addition that you know, in, in addition to addressing muscle function, you, you want to also maintain joint range and flexibility of joint structures and, and tendon and, and so on. And particularly ankle dorsiflexion is important, particularly with the metatarsal stress fractures. We know that ankle dorsiflexion goes away pretty quick if you're not using or you're not going through that range of motion regularly. So once you are not running because you're injured, you may be non-weight bearing for a period, you may be in a boot for a period. Um, you're going to lose some dorsiflexion. So it's important to try and get that dorsiflexion back, or if, even if you haven't lost dorsiflexion, to maintain what you have. So doing dorsiflexion uh, exercises for range is important in metatarsal stress fractures or bone stress injuries because we know that if you have a reduction in dorsiflexion range, then during running and during walking, it results in your heel coming up earlier during the stance phase, and that's going to increase loading or bending moments on that metatarsal. So during the recovery phase of a, a particularly metatarsal bone stress injury, doing active range of motion dorsiflexion uh, with knee straight and knee bent, you can try more active assisted. So putting a, a strap or device around the foot and pulling into more dorsiflexion. You just have to be really careful with that though, with the applying that resistance past where your bone stress injury is and, and loading it too much. So we often start with just active range of motion exercises to maintain range or re uh, restore range. But we try to be really careful if we're using straps and belts around the foot and pulling on them too hard because that is going to load that bone stress injury site. Can you chat a bit about the difference between a posterior medial bone stress injury and an injury in the anterior cortex? I found this to be really interesting in the paper. And, and can you touch on how that plays out clinically in regards to developing your plan of care? Your posterior medial and posterior sort of bone stress injuries in the tibia, your most common low risk sort of bone stress injuries that occur within the tibia. And that contrasts to the anterior cortex bone stress injuries. Those ones in the anterior cortex are thought to be on the tensile side of the bone, whereas the posterior surface of the tibia is a compressive side. So when you run and hit the ground, that posterior surface is compressed. The anterior cortex is distracted or, or there's tension on it. The plantar flexors are important to strengthen those posterior medial stress fractures and bone stress injuries. And you can strengthen them earlier because those muscles create a compressive moment on that posterior tibia. What that does is it doesn't open up the bone stress injury. It doesn't distract the injury and interfere with healing. In contrast with an anterior cortex bone stress injury, the plantar flexors are actually going to create tension on the front of the bone and they're going to open up that bone stress injury and create a tensile force and potentially delay the healing process. So strengthening of the plantar flexors in the, in the, the sort of high-risk anterior tibial bone stress injuries, you know, these are also called your sort of dreaded black line on x-ray because they're a high risk. They don't heal very well. They often go to non-union. 
strengthening plantar flexors too early in, in those anterior cortex bone cyst injuries can actually interfere with the healing process. This really reminds me of the discussion around bone stress injuries in the hip and how depending on the location of the BSI, weight-bearing will actually be beneficial or, or harmful and can drastically affect your plan of care and even really whether or not conservative care is indicated. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's similar at the hip, you know, whether you've got a superior cortex versus inferior cortex bone stress injury. You know, the superior cortex is tensile. You know, that's sort of a surgical we must fix quickly. If it's on the inferior compressive side, then it's more, you can do a more conservative sort of approach. And so that's part one of our discussion with Dr. Stuart Warden. In the next episode, we'll cover the remaining principles for bone stress injury rehabilitation, as well as other tips and recommendations. I hope you have a wonderful day, and thank you, as always, for listening to JOSPT Insight. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.